Well, hello everyone. I'm your host, Cindy Ketzel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. In this podcast, we team up with experts to bring you the best in HR, talent management, and business strategy. Of course, we love hearing from you. If you do have a specific topic or any recommendations for Nine to Thrive, please send us an email to podcasts at hci.org. I am so excited, you all. I got online today. I was reading about DeVry University and its awesome, awesome foundational roots from the early 1930s through current time and space and just the amazing commitment to education and innovation. And so we are so excited to have Dave Barnett, Chief HR and University Relations Officer here with us today for a great conversation. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. We are so thrilled that you're here with us. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this biz. Yeah, gosh, it's a crazy story. I feel like I'm one of those people who can truly say that my career found me versus I found it. But it goes all the way back to my undergrad days down at the University of Illinois. I actually started school as a pre-med major and I took organic chemistry and said, wow, gosh, this is absolutely not the uh, profession for me as much as I wished it were, right? And so I tried several different things out in college and experimented a bit, but a consistent theme for me was I was working in a restaurant chain and I was leading training and development for a region of that restaurant group. And I absolutely loved developing other people and watching them thrive in their careers. And it got me ultra focused on this idea of if we can all chip in and do things to help people find ways to be really good at what they do, how cool would that be? And I got deeper and deeper in that undergrad work and wound up entering the HR profession coming out of college, first in training and organization development, and then advancing my career to becoming a strong people leader. Thematically, it's been a huge part of what I've done, though, is what I've realized is I've been on the HR side of the equation. I've been on the operation side of the equation, and I toggle a bit between being a really operationally minded people leader or a really people minded operational leader. Because I think that the elements are the same, right? At the end of the day, when we think about putting people first and recognizing that we only achieve the mission of the organization through great people and great talent doing really important things for our customers, whatever form they may come in, we do really great stuff. And so that's been the theme for me is how do we get people aligned behind a mission, aligned behind a strategy in delivering outstanding outcomes in any way we do it? Well, that's incredible. Yeah, you've been committed, but I applaud you that when you took that organic chemistry class, realizing, hey, my original dream, I need to find another way. I mean, I do think we're young. We're young at that point. And to be able to realize that already, right, at such a young age, and I have a similar story to you. I had started as a social worker, which is actually a really great for lay into the field of human resources. But I remember, and I really didn't understand the world of training and development. I hadn't been around that. And I had started my first professional role. And I sat in a three weeks training session for us to, you know, kind of be certified to be able to do what we were doing within that organization. And I remember the woman that trained through those three weeks, I was so in awe 
like, wow, she really wants us to be successful in what we're doing. So awesome that you found your way here and you're able to provide your skills and your strengths, both, like you said, as a people leader, and then also, you know, working within the university as that university relations piece as well with students as well. So I love it. So glad you're here. Yeah, you bet. And I will say what's interesting, as I proceeded in my career, I found my first role in mission-driven work was at a Catholic hospital. And I fell in love with the idea of working in an environment where people truly came to work each day focused on the mission. And when I left that was when I had the true aha that I loathed not being in that type of environment anymore. And so ultimately, that's what Full Circle brought me back to higher education, doing what I do is I deeply believe in the mission within higher education. I deeply believe in the mission of DeVry. Yeah. Well, and again, for our listeners, you all, if you have heard the term DeVry University in the past, but don't know a bunch about it, go read about them because they are incredible. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. And with you having that sense, I suspect you and your colleagues, you're able to kind of spread that to the other folks there at DeVry. And then I'm sure that extends out into their student base as well. Oh, absolutely. One of the things we focus on as a differentiator, I believe, in attracting talent is that we put the mission of the center of all of our recruitment work. And so we lead with mission, we lead with culture, and we talk about all the other aspects of the EVP as well, but that's secondary to telling the story of what it is we're trying to do in the world and ensuring the folks we're attracting are really bought into that. Love that. Yep. And it's interesting because it's not organizations just today. I think a lot of organizations have been very mission focused and their EVPs are in alignment with that. I think that the last few years have perhaps reminded organizations, right, that there is a mission that we are working toward and that reminder of kind of getting that culture back in fitness health, right? Like getting back the health of the culture, I think it's been a good reminder. So that's great. I love that you all do that. Well, speaking of all of this, this is really honestly, when I was thinking, what am I going to ask Dave about? Well, this is the reality of it. My very first email, somebody sent an email to podcast at hci.org, which is what I ask people to do. And the title to that was, and it really intrigued me, the reality of professional development in today's workforce. And so as you now know, and as my listening community knows, I love professional development too. I really admire and embrace the folks in our communities that are doing that. So I know that you all at DeVry had recently sponsored a talent talent outlook survey. Would you tell us a little bit more about what that focus was about? You bet. Yeah. Our DeVry Works team recently championed a talent outlook study where we focused heavily on professional development and an understanding of how different approaches to professional development are utilized and perceived inside of organizations. And then also within that, what skills and areas of focus are most important from a professional development perspective as well. That's great. So one of the things, obviously, when we were chatting back and forth that I was curious about, and I think is really interesting about what you learned about in the survey, and we could probably move into a lot of topics when we talk about unused benefits, but I do want to start with, since it really was the focus, is what do we know about professional development then? What did you learn 
about professional development as what we're calling an unused or maybe untapped, whatever language, you know, organizations would want to use as an unused, untapped benefit within our agencies. What does that look like? Sure. No, that's a great question, Cindy. And what we learned was really interesting. What we found is that tuition benefits are one of the more sought after professional development benefits that anybody's looking for when they move to a job. Actually, the Wall Street Journal did a great study that reported that 90% of large and mid-sized employers offer some kind of tuition reimbursement, but less than 10% of workers are actually using tuition benefits. Further, our study showed that it's really an area of draw and interest as workers are joining companies. But there's this breakdown where the benefits just aren't being used to the extent that many executives perceive they are, or as we would all as HR professionals hope that they're being used. What do you think, whether this is your own observation, not being your first rodeo, or what you've seen in data, what do you think is leading to that? What are some of those reasons that we're seeing that minimal use of tuition reimbursement? Sure. I'll do a bit of a mix of some of the things that we learned from the study, but I'll also talk about some of my own perceptions. One, the study told us that awareness of both tuition reimbursement programs or tuition benefit programs and awareness of the specifics of the program and how it could be utilized and a feeling of being encouraged to participate, those levels all diminish as you work on an organization. So executives perceive those levels of awareness, those levels of engagement to be very high, managers less so, frontline colleagues even less so. And so we see that what happens as we work on an organization, awareness and a sense of feeling invited and encouraged diminish. And so I do think we could do a better job as HR professionals of building a broader sense of understanding of what program and benefits are available around continued studies and tuition benefits certainly being a part of that. So one is I just think we have work to do on the awareness front. Two, and this moves away from the study, but perhaps into some of my own thoughts, is I do think that we have an opportunity to structure education benefits in a way that make them easily accessible. I think when we think about the idea of going back to school, we think about taking on tuition, There's a whole lot that can be very scary about that. And for a number of populations, when we think about tuition reimbursement programs, we have to bring money to the table to start the program and later seek reimbursement from our employer. Some of those things create structural barriers to people engaging with benefits. Many organizations often have long wait times to get involved in a tuition program. They have to be employed for X number of days, months, or years before you can take advantage of those programs. I think all of those structural barriers impede utilization at times. One of the changes we made at DeVry is all of our colleagues, when they join our university, are eligible for tuition benefits day one. And so we invite people to take advantage of our classes as soon as they join. And we also structure it in a way that they don't have to pay for that out-of-pocket first and seek reimbursement. We actually directly support the costs. And so, you know, there's ways I think we can design benefits that create a more welcoming front door And I think that has a big impact as well. So I think those are the two primary factors. Well, it's interesting, and I'm not talking from data, but what's interesting is where my brain went when you started sharing initially what you found in the study. There were two things. One, my mind went to once I start working, the reality of trying to fit that in along with 
my new job that I'm working at. The other one is exactly where you finished up here was that structure, kind of restructuring those benefits because I thought the same thing. I learned in a podcast, and I'm sure it has been spoken to me in other places and it was just the place that it stuck, but that if there is a $400 financial crisis, 40% of Americans cannot afford that. Yeah, it's staggering. Right? So when I think about diverse folks are joining an organization and 40% of them probably can't cough up what it takes to even enroll into those classes. And so if that was me, that's probably an automatic shutdown. Am I now going to have to work a second job? What am I going to have to do to be able to afford that initial enrollment? You bet. It's staggering when you think in many cases, the people who most need that opportunity for skills-driven development often have the hardest time accessing that development. I mentioned DeVry's mission, and at the center of our mission is really this idea of connecting underserved populations to meaningful careers in the future, right? And that's the very idea. And as we think about as organizations, we have a responsibility in a lot of ways to do the same, of helping those who most need upskilling, who most need a hand to help them build relevancy to tomorrow's job market. We have to create access. We have to do things that enable that pathway. Yeah. Well, you know, indicating access to, I think that's kind of been a theme. I think when I was chatting with a colleague of yours, as we were setting up this conversation, you know, I was sharing that professional development, medical health, mental health, whatever, awareness and access. Those are the two that we just consistently hear over and over again. And I don't know why it's become really fascinating to me this year to be mindful, probably a little bit from what the gravity of what we've seen over the last few years and disproportionate impacts that we've seen over the last few years, but it's just been really fascinating to me. So awareness and access, great terminology. And I agree with you that those terms are applied broadly. Even just thinking about DeVry, one of the places that we've really leaned in is around overall well-being and mental health. And on this idea of awareness and access, we've leaned in very hard on mental health and making things easy and putting things in people's hands. We work with a care navigation organization to put a care concierge, as I like to call it, in the hands of all of our colleagues. They help colleagues to navigate the entire healthcare system. But what we've also done is just in the past two years, we've added a service that will proactively look at claims and help identify when someone might be in jeopardy of having a mental health crisis or experiencing mental health issues based upon other things going on that they're seeing in claims data. And they will reach out. Unbeknownst to us, of course, that information is confidential, but they'll reach out to engage that individual to proactively help them find a pathway toward mental health. We also rolled out a 24 by 7 app that all of our employees and all of their dependents age 13 or older, can actually access right on their phone for 24 by 7 mental health counseling by text, and they can immediately escalate into video-based therapy or get referrals for local therapy as well, all right there on their device at their fingertips to help overcome you know, the friction in that pathway to getting people toward mental health services. Yeah, I literally just did a four-week weekly communication and kind of targeting a bunch of topics around both like mental well-being and then what support do we need if it's beyond our control 
And the HR person at the company, she was following up on some things for me because everybody at that particular company has access to an EAP. Unfortunately, not everybody has insurance, but everybody has the EAP. And she made a phone call to them. And I just, this stuck in my mind. And I wasn't asking about this, but it was fascinating to me that the person on the other side of the phone, the HR person was talking to this other person and they indicated the toughest part is making that initial phone call. And so you can call, but they also have made it a little bit easier to make that first quote unquote call because they do have it through an online system too. So it is interesting how we're starting to see some of those changes. And I get that, right? I've gone through that journey and I think that is the toughest piece is to make that initial call. So making that accessible and good for you all for doing that. Absolutely. Too. We've all been so programmed. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to raise your hand and say, I just need help with this. It is. I was going to say it's stigma too. Yep. And I am going to come back to the study, but this is really fascinating to me. So I know rationally, right, as your faculty, as your staff, as they are able to maintain a wellness right? That extends to your students, right? Because if we're healthy, others are able to kind of toe that line too and can see that and feel that. But does DeVry also, is there an extension out? Because I know you kind of manage both. You're overseeing the workforce, but you're also kind of part of university relations. So is there any connection between what you're doing within your colleagues and then extended to the students? Oh, absolutely. I will answer the indirect version and the direct version. But first, we talk a lot about culture at the beginning of this call. In our culture, we call it our culture of care. And it's grounded in three pillars, care for self, care for colleagues, care for students. And it's this idea that you have to first take care of yourself so that you can take care of those we work with and so that we can then all figuratively lock arms and take care of our students. And so without question, all of the things we do to drive physical and mental wellness with our faculty and with our staff, whether it be like the benefits I just spoke about or things we do through our diversity, equity, inclusion team, which for as an example, we have what we call courageous conversations where we talk about tough topics, tough world events, and give people a safe space that they can share their views and learn from the views of others. And all of those things build a community where we have a sense of wellness and a sense of care for each other. And then we bring that to our students through all the proactive outreach that we do, through their dedicated advisors, all of those things that really wrap our students in a strong, strong bubble of care to help them navigate what's a tough journey. Higher education isn't easy. (laughs) And our students are all working individuals. They may have families. I mean, they're integrating this. And so we very much look at how do we dedicate advisors to helping people navigate the journey. And so I'm certain that that bleeds through. Second to that, when I say answer directly, just as I talked about a mental health solution we have for all of our colleagues, we also work with a third party to have a mental health solution available to all of our students. There's direct resources for them there as well. And that's been a fantastic partnership for us. Thank you for sharing that. Like I said, I have been delighted to see that the conversation is We see it more on LinkedIn now, like people are talking about it. So thank you for sharing. And I'm going to draw a conclusion. Possibly I might be way off because I want to ask you about any other unused benefits that you're seeing that are coming up in this survey. But is that one of them as well? Or are you not seeing that as an unused benefit as much as I would imagine? So I would say it's an interesting landscape. 
what I see, which makes me very happy, is I do see claims levels rising for mental health care, which makes me really pleased because it means a greater proportion of our colleagues are getting help and taking care of themselves. I don't think it's to the level that it needs to be. So I still believe it's underutilized. I think mental health services in this country overall are underutilized and you know, we could talk broadly about a number of reasons, whether it be stigma, whether it be capacity of the system, there's a number of factors. But I'm really pleased to see our utilization on steady incline. And so I think that's a real positive. In our stack, you know, I do think there's other benefits that do go less utilized. And I'd love to see those continue to work their way upward. I think one example is we have a great relationship with care.com where we actually leverage their care navigators and folks can call in and get a concierge level of help to find whether it be childcare or elder care or house cleaning, all of those things. And so I think, you know, that's an area where we have to do a better job of promoting and helping people to access those benefits because I think they're tremendously helpful. We do a lot of work around physical well-being and we have contests and an app and rewards for being physically active and doing overall wellness activities. And we've got a strong core group of folks using those benefits. But again, would love to see that increase and greater engagement there. And so we're doing a lot of work to more effectively tell our benefits story and telling it in service of our EVP so that everyone not only understands the the mouse clicks, if you will, of each benefit. And we do a great job of that, right? We can tell you what the numbers are and what your deductible is and what the out-of-pocket max this year is, but it's different than actually telling the emotional story of how the benefits come together and can impact quality of life. And so we're doing a lot of work to say, how do we tell the story in a compelling way that ladders up to our employee value proposition to make sure that our colleagues are extracting the most value they possibly can out of our benefit stack? We're proud of it. We invest heavily in it. And so we want to make sure that we're getting everyone engaging with the pieces that are most valuable to them. This is probably a no-duh question on my part, but the Talent Outlook survey that you all utilized, has that been instrumental in your strategy, I guess, going forward, like looking to see you know, where some of those unused benefits lie? I mean, you've shared with me a number of ways in which you are wrapping your arms around some of those benefits to increase utilization, but has that in the past or does that kind of drive your strategy? It does. So the Talent Outlook study was very focused on professional development. And so where it has really influenced us is around professional development and understanding what types of skills are most important has really been helpful for us. And so what we saw in the study, and this probably isn't a big shock, but top skills are leadership, data-driven decision-making, and digital fluency are three skills that came through loud and clear in our study that is what organizations really need. You know, in many ways that's reinforcing, right? But as we look at the environment we're in today, leaders are taxed in such a different mode when we're talking about hybrid and remote work. And so we can't underestimate the skills need for us to learn how to be effective remote leaders when we can't be knee to knee or eyeball to eyeball with someone, but still effectively engage them in the mission, effectively engage them in our culture and drive performance. You know, second, we see levels of data are shooting through the roof in terms of the amount of available data that can help inform decision making and to get folks trained in a manner that can go beyond data to true insights and ultimately enable strong, positive decision making is really critical as well. And so I do think the survey has been very useful for us in shaping the way we approach professional development within our own walls. 
Yeah, that's incredible. I love that it has an internal use, but also educating others on on needs for their, you know, line of business as well. And and here at HCI, I don't know how familiar you are with us, but we have certification programs and one of our certification programs is people analytics for HR. And I've been teaching that for five years, which also is crazy because social workers do not like numbers. So when you, <laughs> when you talked about organic chemistry, I'm like, yeah, but I'm in facilitating the conversation around the journey to utilize data to provide insights, right? So that's different. I don't have to know the statistics of the, the model. I mean, I have to understand the models. I don't have to actually know it. But anyways, but yeah, so we teach a class. And what I was going to say is it has been incredible to see in the last five years, right? I am outsmarted and I'm glad to see that, but I am so outsmarted by so many of my participants because I think that whether they're, you know, coming to a university like DeVry or they're elsewhere, right, in other programs or, you know, taking classes, they are starting to educate students on not just our business students, but students across every industry about the importance of utilizing data to make decisions. So it's been really interesting. I'm like, people want to put their money in the right places. And I think, you know, that's what I always say. Well, you've been in HR, right? So when I started in HR, I was very much in a department that we were kind of policing the employees to make sure they were completing their trainings or making sure they signed up for benefits, right? So it's been a huge evolution to where we are now and organizations want to make sure that they're utilizing the dollars in a place that makes the most sense. So it's fascinating. Oh, you bet. I think, you know, talent analytics has come such a long way. And just as one example, to your point of going back in HR, if we think about talent selection, you know, early on in the early days, simply the idea of interviewing was novel. <laughs> and then as HR professionals, we learned that, you know, for many of us, we subscribe to a mindset that behavioral-based interviewing is, is the gold standard of interviewing and that past behavior predicts future behavior. And we move toward that. And now in our own practices at DeVry, we, of course, still use behavioral-based interviewing, but we've also implemented now a predictive analytics model where we use a tool where we can ingest data from top performers in a particular role in the organization. And we use that data to then build a profile against an assessment of those individuals with the highest propensity to be successful in this role might align to this profile. And then we leverage that profile in screening to screen for individuals that have a similar profile from a psychometric perspective, a validated tool that we can then help select into the rule. And so we've now gone beyond interviewing to actually leveraging data analytics against top performers and candidates to look for fit. You know, it's just taking over. Make sure I'm understanding this. So now you're looking at competencies or skills of people. It may not be what sits on their resume. I mean, it could be what sits on their resume, but you're also wanting to understand what skill level, what competency level they have, because we know this is what a top performer in this role looks like. You bet. It's a mix of skills and competencies and also just psychometric markers. They're hard coding, how they're wired and how they think. And I'm not a proponent of saying that should replace interviewing, right? I don't think we're there, but as an augmentation too, as one factor in the process, it's highly valuable. Yep. 
interesting. Oh, that's so cool. Well, thank you for that too, because I will happily share that with my next class as I get to have a conversation with them about how you're using data analytics. So that's pretty cool. Well, we are wrapping up here. Anything you want to close out on before we wrap up? You know, the only thing I will say, Cindy, is just a restatement of something we talked about earlier and that I'm so passionate about this notion that as HR professionals, we all need to be looking at ways that we can provide opportunity and we can provide access. To the extent that we can connect people with professional development and help those who perhaps have skills that are dating or dated or are seeking relevancy in the workforce, that we're all investing in the right ways to help many, many people have highly relevant skills that will serve them well into the future. It's a point of passion and it's just a really important right now. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it a bit. I love it. I am so delighted. I know we've we've had to reschedule a couple times with Dave, but this was worth every second of that. So we are we are so grateful that you were able to make time with us today. Thank you so much, Dave Barnett. You bet. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. All right, Nine to Thrive listeners, just a reminder, if you would like an opportunity to be on our Nine to Thrive podcast, give us an email at podcast at hci.org. Or if you have any suggestions for topics, we'd love to hear from you there as well. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating. Your rating helps other professionals and talent-minded people discover our program. For Nine to Thrive HR and all of us here at HCI, we appreciate you for tuning in. Make it a great day, everyone.